Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the old, old story of Jesus and his love from, as it's recorded in Romans chapter 7. Frankly, brothers and sisters, you're going to need to play, to pay close attention tonight in order to stay with this teaching from Romans 7. This may not be the deepest end of the biblical pool, but it is way out past where the kids swim. It's that other end of the pool. And you should pay attention, in fact, because while not every point of doctrine in this chapter is essential to believe in order to be saved, nevertheless, a very great deal indeed rides on whether or not you understand and accept Paul's teaching about the law of God and the grace of God and the believer in him, in God, through his son Jesus Christ, by the work of the Spirit. Because you're not going to understand the power of sin which he has overcome for us if you don't perceive this. So your experience of worship, just as one for instance, would be greatly diminished unless you plumb the depths of Romans chapter 7 with me tonight. This isn't academic stuff, in other words. I guess that's what I'm really trying to say. Believers need to know and understand and uh, meditate upon these things, the law and the grace of God and how they react together. So what I'm asking you to do is to uh, bite the inside of your cheek if you need to stay awake here tonight. Uh, straighten your spine, sit erect if you need to stay alert tonight. If it helps you to write things down, then write things down to remember them tonight as we turn together to Romans chapter 7, and I'll be beginning with verse 7. Would you hear the word of our God? What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came... Sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Let us pray. Our Father, you have promised us through your Son that we have everything in him. All the ancient covenants and the new covenant, the law of Moses and the law of love, the old way of Sinai and the new way of the Spirit. We remember that Jesus himself said that every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who brings out his out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Lord, tonight 
Make us like those wise scribes trained for the kingdom of heaven. For we pray for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled my sermon tonight, The New Way of the Spirit, even though those words do not actually appear in these verses, but the verse that immediately precedes our passage. I entitled my sermon, The New Way of the Spirit, even though Paul is not mainly focused on that subject per se in our passage tonight. We're talking about the new way of the Spirit because, frankly, none of Romans 7 would have ever been written if a new way of being a believer, even I would dare to say a new way of being human, had not entered the world in Jesus Christ. You see, Romans 7 is possible because something stupendous had happened in the sin-dominated world that we live in. Something that takes people out of one category and moves them forever into another category. Something that changes the whole tone and tenor of living a life daily before the face of God. Something that is so profound that the Apostle Paul could only use the language of life and death, to describe it. Paul says in Romans 7 and verse 6, that key verse that appears right before our passage tonight, Romans 7 verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way, of the written code. It's similar to what he had said back in chapter 6 when he said that believers in Christ no longer lived under law but under grace. Something tremendous has happened and it has changed everything about the religious life, the apostle was saying. But this new way of the Spirit can also be easily misunderstood. And I think what the Apostle wants to do here tonight is to prevent some of those misunderstandings from surfacing in the Roman church and in this church. This passage before us, speaking now of Romans 7, verses 7 to 12, is all a response to that keystone verse I listed a moment ago, verse 6. So it's all in response to verse 6. Again, Paul has just said in verse 6 that we now serve under the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, which was being under the law, he said, the law of God. But he immediately wants to head off a misunderstanding of the law of God that could surface because of what he just said. And so in verse 7, Paul says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. And then glance down, if you will, for just a moment to verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul leaves no doubt here, does he? The law itself is not flawed. The law is good. It it did everything the Lord actually intended for it to do. But Paul does understand how you might be confused about that after what he said earlier. 
So he explains in these verses that are sandwiched between 7 and 12, he explains that, that dynamic. While the law itself is holy and good, it is also true, he says in the latter half of verse 7, follow along here, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now I want to kind of take a time out for just a moment here to explain something that really helped me when I first began to grapple with, with Romans specifically. One of the things that's tricky about understanding the apostles' writing, especially in Romans, is the way he uses the word law. He uses it in various ways. Sometimes when he says law, he simply means a pattern or principle that is always true. For instance, later in this chapter, in verse 21, he says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And he's not referring to a law that came from Mount Sinai. That's a law of human nature, or we might say a predictable tendency or pattern in human life. More often, however, Paul is referring either to the Ten Commandments, which of course we all know is the moral law of God, or the whole package of ceremonial and civil laws that came with those Ten Commandments, or both. That's the Hebrew stuff. That's the Sinai stuff. Occasionally, Paul may even be, and I think this is especially important in Romans 7, He may be speaking in a one-level-removed variety from those specific Hebrew laws and referring more broadly to a way of life based on moral uh, rule-keeping, a moralistic human striving, people, you know, trying to be good people as best they know how to be. Because you got to remember, Paul's not writing to a Jewish congregation primarily here. uh, This congregation is in Rome. And so these are primarily not people whose heritage is Mosaic. Paul's writing to a Gentile church substantially. And I think indeed uh, in Romans 7 he often uses the word law to simply refer to uh, the effort to strive and, and be moral for God in order to make our lives approved by God. However when he speaks with the personal voice about his own experience in law or with law, surely he's referring there to the Hebrew laws, the commandments which came to his people through Moses. So what does he mean in the latter half of verse 7 when he says, if it had not been for the law, he would not have known sin for, quoting the 10th commandment, he would not have known what it is to covet If the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul's going to make the case in these verses that the law, and clearly here he's referring to the Ten Commandments, that the law is holy. He would not have known how to covet, he said, if if it had not been commanded. He's going to make the case that the law, which is good and holy, has a surprising relationship to sin. For while the law of God appears, of course, to be the opposite of sin, right? I mean, the law would be the opposite of doing the sin. 
However, in the context of our fallen world and our fallen hearts, the law does two things in sinners' lives, Paul indicates here. First, he says, it reveals sin, and secondly, it stimulates sin. Now, you should write that down if you're taking notes. The law of God reveals sin, and it stimulates sin. Verse 7 has to do with the revealing of sin. Paul says if, he had not, if it had not been for the law, he wouldn't have known sin. Now let me tell you what this doesn't mean. It does not mean he would not have been a sinner. It means he would not have been cognizant of the sin in the same way. And you know, that may be especially true for coveting, which is in some ways the most subtle of sins. You know, I think coveting is the the dark horse of the Ten Commandments. It underlies a lot of other sins in a sneaky kind of way. Uh, Covetousness uh, produces a relentless discontentment with our own life that then leads often to a whole bunch of other problems and sins and troubles. But we're not often aware of that as much, of our own coveting, because coveting is, is subterranean. It's beneath the surface. It's in the motions of the heart. It's in the dreams of the mind. We usually know when we kill someone or harm them in such a way or, or rob something from them, steal something, but we don't all, we're not always aware when we are in a position of coveting. But when the Lord puts it in the Ten Commandments and brands this coveting as sin, as law-breaking, Well, now we see it in a new light. Calvin declares, John Calvin declares that when Paul says, I would not have known sin, what he really means is, I would not have known the diagnosis of my sin apart from the law. Ambrose, from a much earlier period in church history, said the law is the discoverer, not the source of sin. The law shows the shadow of our sin in our lives, rather like a CAT scan reveals the shadow of disease in our body. Paul would certainly have been a coveter, even if he had had never received the commandments uh, from Moses and from his people. Just like a sick person would still have cancer, whether or not they had the CAT scan. But Paul would not have known that he was a coveter in the same way without the declarative power of the law of God which says, Thou shalt not covet. You see? Truth be told, you know, left to ourselves, we never naturally think of ourselves as sinners. And that's precisely because we are sinners that we think that way. I mean, who naturally thinks as God said of the people on the earth before the flood, every inclination of the thoughts of their heart is evil all the time. Who thinks of themselves in that way, naturally? Even if we do come to think that you know, some things we've done are wrong, that's not necessarily the same as law-breaking sin before a holy God, the blessed ruler of all creation. Breaking the law of our God, which is what sin really is, is not just being in error or making a mistake or failing to fulfill our human 
potential. Sin, precisely because it is at its heart the breaking of divine law, is a personal affront to the source of our very existence and the fountain of goodness and joy that poured forth the whole universe. I mean, sin is walking up to the unblinking eye of God, God who is our Father, and sticking a stick in it. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law, the law of God, had not said, you shall not covet. The secular therapists and the psychiatrists are right. Religion of this sort does indeed produce a deep experience of personal guilt. Indeed it does. It's supposed to. It produces a sense of guilt because we are guilty. But God's law revealing and diagnosing our sin, that's just half of it. And it's really not even the most surprising part. Because God's holy law also stimulates our sin, that is, it deepens our sin, it energizes our sin in a surprising way. This is what James Boyce called the sin's sad use of God's good law. Sin's sad use of God's good law. God never gave man the law code to save him, but to guide him as a creature saved by his grace and love. But man, under the power of sin, used even this good thing, even this wholesome, heaven-sent, holy thing, to sin more. To sin on steroids, as it were. Or as Paul says later in the same chapter, sin to sin beyond measure. And you might at first think, well, this just... This just can't be true. This has got to be apostolic overstatement. But that's your sin nature talking. You know how this happens. Pastor Warren Wearsby said as he was uh, standing in Lincoln Park in Chicago one day, he, he saw a, a, a series of park benches that had a sign on them that said, Do not touch. They had just been painted. You could say, in a sense, that the sign, do not touch, was a law. It was the law of the park. Do not touch the wet bench. And as he stood there and observed, of course, you know what happened. A number of people come by, seeing the sign, deliberately reach out and touch the bench and the wet paint. They wouldn't have done so except for the law there. It told them not to. It's the lure of the forbidden. Where do you think we get the term forbidden fruit? It comes right, of course, out of Eden, out of the story of Eden. The very existence of a law or a rule causes sinners to want to break it. Let me ask, and and, and I stand guilty as anyone here. Why do so many of us drive 67 miles per hour on a 65 mile per hour speed limited highway? Is 67 that much better than 64? 
Paul will say in the next chapter, the carnal mind is at enmity with God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. And by that he means not willing to be subject. And it's actually worse than just the lure of the forbidden, if we're honest. It's also the thrill of the actual rebellion itself. I mean... It's not like having initially committed the violation of the law, we immediately feel stricken with guilt and repent. Oh no, we often double down then in the doing of it. So the law doesn't just stimulate our sin through seduction, through drawing us in for the forbidden fruit, but it also then stimulates our excitement, the thrill of the rebellion itself ongoing. St. Augustine, writing in the 4th century, famously described his experience when he was a boy, the experience of stealing his neighbor's pears from their pear tree. He said it wasn't that he was so hungry that caused his friends and him to sneak into his neighbor's field at night and steal their pears. It wasn't even that they tasted so good he'd had better before, he said. It's that it was forbidden. Even after he started picking them and eating them, Augustine continued uh, to, to, to pull more off, eventually just throwing them on the ground. He kept doing it, you see, because he enjoyed doing it. It was thrilling precisely because it was stealing. He wrote later, I loved nothing in it except the thieving. You know, I had almost the same experience as a young boy. Bunch of guys, hot summer night, about 2 a.m., in a farmer's field stealing watermelons. It was all about stealing. What we see in all this, of course, is the really mighty power of human sinfulness. It is a beast of unparalleled strength within the heart of All men and women. It's not that the law of God is not good. It is holy. It just can't conquer the dynamic and self-deceiving power of sin. In fact, sin uses the holy energy of law, we might say, to strengthen itself, to, to, to stimulate further sin. Notice, however, that what we have not mentioned yet is the power of God's own spirit in the new way of the spirit, which the apostle announced back in the sixth verse. God is greater than his law and the spirit than the written code handed down on the fiery mountain. Yet, if you want to understand that new way of living in Christ, you really have to understand what it has overcome and is still overcoming in the life of every believer. You need to know uh, down to your feet that the law is, is a, that sin, I'm sorry, is a grizzly bear. It is a, a great white shark. And if you take it any less seriously than that, you are, a, biblically speaking, a fool. Sobering stuff. Apart from the Spirit of God in us, 
Sin uses even the holy law of God. Think of it. To strengthen itself. To gather new momentum. Now again, that's not a problem with the law per se, but it does reveal what power lies in sin. I was thinking of it this week. Sin is like a a black hole in outer space that collides with God's galaxies. And it not only isn't destroyed by the collision, but swallows those galaxies whole and then grows stronger and stronger in gravitational power because of the greater mass at its core. Sin is the ravenous black hole of human life. And everything we throw at it makes it stronger. The good law of the Lord, His commandments described in the Psalms as sweet as honey dripping from the comb, that law by itself never has a chance. So understand, without the law of God in view, while it's true that man still sins, he sins by addition, we might say. But when the law of God is added to the mix, just the law now, not the new way of the Spirit, just the law, sinful man sins by multiplication. Paul says in verse 8, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Think of that sentence. Apart from the law... Sin lies dead. Now he's speaking somewhat creatively here. He doesn't mean absolutely dead in the sense of no power at all. Or that it doesn't exist. Of course, that's not true. There was sin before God gave the Ten Commandments. But what it does mean is that sin is weak by comparison when compared to law-stimulated wickedness. I mean, who did Jesus Christ save his harshest words for? It wasn't prostitutes. It wasn't tax collectors or, or even, you know, rich young men who were uh, captive, held captive by their wealth. It was the keepers of the law of God, the good and holy law of God, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes. John Calvin said in his Uh, usual graphic way. He says, what the law does in the absence of the inward teacher, the spirit, is increasingly to inflame our hearts so that they boil up with lusts. Law leads to lusts. And Paul knew all about that heart that boiled with depraved lust. For his own heart had boiled with hatred for the followers of Jesus to the extent that he had thought he was on a holy mission to pursue them and destroy them. As he actually did, you recall, in the case of Stephen or assisted with it. And he did so, of course, in the name of the Jewish law and Sinai tradition. Because you see, there is, believe it or not, yet a third way. That law stimulates sin in the sinner. So again, not just from the forbidden fruit syndrome. Not just from the thrill of the rebellion itself. But most of all, and I think in some ways worst of all. The law magnifies sin by deceiving those who actually try to keep the law 
in order to make things right between them and their God. I mean, it it seems simple enough, doesn't it? Fight law-breaking sin by keeping the law. Just seems logical. But there are two things that simple formula grossly underestimates. First, the supreme holiness of our God, which demands a perfect keeping of the law to live in His presence. And secondly, the incredible power of sin in man to deceive himself even as he uses the law. Paul never had felt more holy than when he had the blood of the saints dripping off his fingers. Surely that's what he is referring to, by the way, in verses 9 through 11. Look at that, if you will. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. You see, Paul was actually most dead spiritually when he thought was thinking of himself as most faithful among all the Jews. A Jew's Jew. For when he was killing Stephen, the law was killing him spiritually by stimulating such bloodthirsty sin in his heart. It's precisely his zeal for the law that caused him to shatter the law in killing the the followers of Jesus. Beloved, the things that we are handling in our faith are dangerous things. They're dangerous things to handle. They are dangerous because our sinful nature is powerful and it's deceiving. Even holy things can be turned entirely against us. We should all want to obey the Lord, of course, but even that desire, even a zeal for righteousness, and I've seen this as a pastor so many times, can become a fraudulent stand-in for the lavish grace of God given to us freely by the Father in the Son, received by faith through the inward work of the Spirit. So I, I would just say be careful, brothers and sisters. Be careful. The dangers of the law and human moral effort as sort of false messiahs, that, that is always with us. Years ago, I'll conclude with this. Years ago, the famously irascible uh, Dr. John Gerstner was preaching after his retirement from many years as a seminary professor of church history. He was preaching that night from Romans. And by dealing with the law of God, he was sort of stripping away every pretense of human righteousness uh, on its own terms, so to speak. And after the service ended, Dr. Gerstner went to the back of the church, as we preachers are wont to do, to greet people. And there was this woman coming. He saw her coming. She was eyeing him sort of warily. And she had her finger and her thumb about half an inch apart. And she said to him when she got up to him, Dr. Gerstner, you make me feel about this big. And Gerstner said immediately, but madam... That's too big. That's much too big. 
Don't you know that that much self-righteousness will take you to hell? Dear people of the new covenant, let the teaching of Romans break you down so that God can build you up in the blessed image of his dear son. Continue to study the harder things of God, the complexities of sin and its interaction with law and the all-sufficiency of his grace because in such perseverance, in such continuing study will come maturity and transformation and joy for you. Spurgeon once said, by perseverance... The lowly snail entered the ark of God. By perseverance, the the, the lowly snail entered the ark of God. So you persevere in study, patiently study the wondrous grace of the new covenant. That new covenant that has, has seized our hearts in this new way. And meditate even more on this new way of the Spirit that Paul refers to here. Because there is more grace in Him than there is sin in us. And this grace is all-powerful, and it can do what the law by itself could never do. So in this way, brothers and sisters, let it be about Him and not about us. Let it be about the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. Let it be about a love life. Not a law life. For when that is so, when Christ is our all in all, then the law of God will return to us in all its majesty and beauty and helpfulness. And it will not be dangerous to us, but a delight to us. For in Christ, as Paul says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy. And it is righteous and good. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, indeed it is so. Every scribe who is trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. In Christ we have it all. We have the faith of Abraham. We have the the persistence of Noah. Lord, we have the the law of Moses. We have the, the heartfulness of David. We have Paul as our brother. We have the new heavens and the new earth as our vision with John the Apostle. And we have all of these treasures from the old and the new only because of Christ our Lord. So we glory in him tonight. We ask you to deconstruct us in all of our pride, in all of our self-sufficiency, in all of our presumption about our morality. And, oh, Father, build us up in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And with that, we will be satisfied. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the receipt of the benediction? And now may the Lord bless you and keep you, and may make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
both now and ever. Amen.